You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. You'll have to pardon me today. I've got a bit of a cold, uh, like so many of us, right? Um, So if I break into a coughing fit, that's why. Um, Our text today is from Matthew chapter 2, this Christmas Sunday, uh, from Matthew's Nativity. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. And just to give you a quick background for this this text, this is um, the moment just after the three wise men have come to the manger and presented their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, And immediately thereafter, Matthew's gospel takes a very... Matthew's nativity story takes a very dark turn, very, very fast. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 13. Now after the wise men had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now a quick word about Herod for those of you who don't know who he is really. He is the Roman-appointed client king of Judea. Roman appointed is the key word there. He is like an employee of the Roman government, and he was notorious for being absolutely ruthless in his desire to keep and maintain power, so much so that it is well known that he actually killed his own close family members, a few of his wives, and even some of his own sons. If he suspected you of plotting against him, there's no trial, he just would have you killed. In fact, Caesar Augustus once remarked with both admiration and horror that it was better to be a pig in Herod's house than one of his own sons. Yeah, that tells you who, who Herod was. So back to the story. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time they had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what has been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. I wrestled with speaking from this text today because I realize this can be a very triggering text. And frankly, as a father myself myself of a two-year-old, I read this text differently now than I used to. And I read it with a lot of sensitivity. And forgive me if this is, if this is triggering at all. But I wanted to read it because it's part of the nativity story. And it's especially part of Matthew's nativity story. This, is, this event is called the Massacre of the Innocents. And Matthew is the only one who covers it. You don't find it in any of the other gospels. Matthew is the only one who includes it. And I think he includes it for good reason. I think he includes it to tie together the beginning of Jesus' life with the end meaning both the beginning of Jesus' life and the end of his life is marked by profound suffering, violence, and death, and the state hunting him down. Think about that. His life begins and ends with the state trying to neutralize him as a political threat. Where Herod failed, Pontius Pilate eventually succeeded 33, you know, 30 years later. And so I think Matthew includes this massacre of the innocents, this story here, to tie together 
both the beginning and the end of Jesus' life, eventually the state had its way with him and had him killed, neutralized him as a threat for social change, among other change. For this reason, it's, it's, I think it's hard not to read the Gospels as at least in part a message about how Rome always finds a way to win in the end, how the rulers and authorities, the unjust systems and oppressive systems of this world always seem to find a way in the end to get you and crush the little guy. It's hard not to read the Gospels, especially Matthew's Gospel, at least in part about that idea. Last week, we talked about this a little bit. We were looking at Mary's song out of Luke 1, and Mary's song, Mary sings about this, this wonderful expectation she has that her son, the Messiah, will, quote, bring down the powerful from their thrones, lift up the lowly, fill the hungry with good things, and send the rich away empty-handed. And we talked about how, where, where is that happening in the world? When, when has that really ever happened? Where is that happening? The rich being sent away empty, you know? There is now greater, we talked about this last week in the discussion portion, that there's now greater economic inequality in the world than there ever has been. And we're told, just recently told, in fact, that eight men, eight men, billionaires, own as much wealth as 50% of the rest of the world, the 50% of the world's poorest. Eight men own as much wealth as approximately four billion with a B other people. Eight men. Unprecedented, never seen before in world history. And it can lead to a sense of despair, stuff like that. That this world really isn't getting better, but it's getting worse. And it can lead to a sense that, you know, Christian claims that God is in solidarity with the poor and the powerless and that love wins and that, you know, our social justice hopes, you know, can lead to a sense that all of this is just pie in the sky nonsense and it's just wishful thinking and empty promises. And I wanted to address this today because I think the nativity story, in the greater context, especially Matthew's nativity story, in the greater context of Jesus' life, is really about balancing hope and despair. It's really about finding hope in the midst of despair. The nativity story in Matthew is a microcosm example of this. The great hope and joy of Jesus' birth, right? The celebration, the, the light and love and celebration and joy of Jesus' birth is immediately overshadowed with unspeakable tragedy and darkness. The massacre of the innocents. I mean, when you think about it, Jesus' nativity was both a blessing and a curse to Bethlehem, right? I mean, you, we've always thought that, you know, Bethlehem was blessed by the nativity. Well, if you were among the parents who lost one of your children, after Jesus escaped to Egypt, where was God then? How was Jesus' nativity in your, in your town a blessing to your town? You know, it's, it's probably shocking to a lot of people that God would allow the birth of his son, perhaps the greatest, the greatest moment, we're told, in world history to be overshadowed with such a horrific event. How could God allow this to happen? But is this not just like the world as it actually is? It's a mixed bag. We find good and evil next to each other all the time. Hope and despair together. Good and evil. Suffering and joy. This is the way the world actually is. God is found in the midst of that. That, 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 that to me is the power of Matthew's gospel, right? This balance between hope and despair, perhaps. This too is the story of Jesus. And what's interesting about his story, as we all know it, right? it doesn't end with the crucifixion and the burial, right? It ends with the resurrection. 
And I read the resurrection as about the possibility of the so-called impossible. What I mean by so-called impossible is I mean our definitions of what's impossible usually means the, the limits of our understanding of things. The so-called impossible, our definitions of what's impossible are, usually have to do with the horizon of our experience and our definitions or our, our limited understanding of things. I read the resurrection as about the possibility of this impossible idea that Rome and the unjust, oppressive powers of this world, of which Rome represents, can actually be defeated. The resurrection, I think, is, is really about that, this idea that the, that the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers, the cosmological powers of darkness that rule this world, symbolized, of course, in death, that these powers can actually be defeated. That they don't always win. That they actually don't always have the last word. That's the audacity of the gospel um, to me. And I think in some ways Jesus did defeat Rome. I really do. Jesus showed us that Rome has no power of you if you, fear, if you don't fear death. Or even if you do fear death, but you're still willing to lay down your life like Jesus did, Rome really has no power of you. The unjust systems of this world have no power over somebody who does not actually fear death or is willing to lay down their life as Jesus was. In this way, Jesus defeated Rome and even the Jerusalem religious establishment, the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers of this world, and even made a mockery of them, as Colossians 2 tells us. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. So in a way, Jesus did defeat Rome, I think. And I see the crucifixion and the resurrection as like two sides of the same coin. Both of them should be understood as a way of describing Jesus' victory over the rulers and authorities. The resurrection does not undo the crucifixion. The resurrection is not a negation of the crucifixion. But the resurrection is really a completion, a fulfillment of the crucifixion. In the same way, hope and despair are like two sides of the same coin. We only know hope because we know despair. And we only know despair because we know hope. Despair without hope is just cynicism and nihilism. But hope without despair is just naivete, ignorance, shallowness, superficiality, empty platitudes like, you know, God's going to make everything okay and he never allows anybody to suffer more than they can handle in this world, right? But the gospel does not give us a naive hope. The gospel gives us a hope that makes sense in this difficult world. There's a book I consulted this week in preparation for my talk that I wanted to recommend to all of you. It's called Hope in the Dark. There it is, uh, by Rebecca Solnit, subtitled Untold Histories and Wild Possibilities. It's a great book, and I actually discovered it through our friend Andre Henry. He claims that this book saved his life. That's a pretty profound <laughs> uh, endorsement, right? But the book is really about, you know, listing both minor and major social justice victories in history and how we can actually, you know, find hope in history. That it's not all despair, that there is hope. Solnit talks about how despair is a dangerous thing. 
because it has, the, it has a powerful amnesia effect. Despair is a dangerous thing because it has a powerful amnesia effect in the way that it can get us to forget the past or misremember the past. And all the minor and major social justice victories therein. For example, there have been tremendous human rights achievements over the century, over the, over the last century and the way that we think about race and gender and sexuality and class. Tremendous achievements. Much work still has to be done, but it would be wrong for us to say that great strides have not been made because they absolutely have. And they've taken place on a scale never seen before in world history. You know, it's now legal. It is legal now to be LGBTQ in over 100 countries in the world. Just a century ago, only 20. That's an amazing achievement. Most of the world's population now lives in democracy. Most of the world's population now lives in what we would call liberal democracy. You know, authoritarian, autocratic dictatorships. You know, these things are increasingly becoming more of a thing of the past. You know, the monarchies are all but gone. The world is orientating itself more and more towards liberal democracy. That's just a fact of history. And I think we sometimes misapprehend or forget just, just, how, just how big of a deal that actually is for people's quality of life around the world, for billions and billions of people. I think one could argue in general, very broadly speaking, okay, that human well-being has dramatically improved around the world just over the last century. Life expectancy for billions of people has gone up dramatically because of nutrition, modern medicine, uh, and just general quality of life. Globally speaking, thank you. <laughs> Is everything okay? Is this still working? Cool. Uh, generally speaking, the world has never been more hospitable for human life than it is now. Since 1950, the w global population in 1950 was about two and a half billion. It's over seven billion now. In just 70 years, the global population has more than tripled. How is that possible? Vast improvements in medicine, nutrition, relationships between very different nations and different cultures have propagated. You know, trade agreements, our ability to move goods and services and resources to even the most remotest parts of the world. The world has never been more hospitable for human life than it is now, one could argue. And yet, it's quite possible that for all of our technological advances, it, they will be our undoing. It's entirely possible with climate change climate collapse due to fossil fuel burning, right? We, we don't know, but there's reasons to remain hopeful is what I'm saying and what Solnit is saying. Consider the ecological victories of just the last century, the last 50 years. Consider that our rivers, lakes, and streams have never been, you know, as clean as they are now prior to the, you know, modern age. You know, it used to be that entire rivers caught on fire. I don't know if you're aware of that. Entire river, rivers used to catch on fire. Like the Cuyahoga River fire in Cleveland in 1969, the river was so polluted and covered with debris and oil, uh, entire rivers would catch on fire. Like the Cuyahoga River fire in 1969. That event, coupled with this major oil spill, and if you remember this, obviously it's before most of our time, um, coupled with a major oil spill in Santa Barbara in the same year in 1969, the public outcry and environmental activism because of those two events launched the EPA and passed numerous laws and legislations that cleaned up the nation. 
in the, na the nation's environment. There was a, a newspaper in Santa Barbara, an editor that said this at that time in 1969. Never in my long life have I seen such an aroused populace at the grassroots level. Let's not forget the environmental activism that, that accomplished so much over the last 50 years. Let's not, for, let's not misremember the past and how much has been done. Yes, much still has to be done. But let's not forget how environmental activism, people working for that kind of social justice, were enormously successful. Enormously successful. Successful. There are countless examples like this in world history of small movements mushrooming, in, mushrooming into full-blown revolutions that reshaped entire nations. Even single individuals can make an enormous impact. December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks didn't give up her bus seat. Look what that led to. Never doubt the power of even a, a single individual acting or even a small community like this one. I personally know many LGBTQ Christian activists who believe that we are witnessing, just over the last few years, a sea change in the church, in the American church, over how it treats the LGBTQ community. Even in churches that are not fully affirming, you know, we're, we're fully affirming here, right? But in, most churches are not. But even in those communities, LGBTQ people are being treated with a greater level of dignity and respect that, than they ever have been. And that's absolutely the direct result of activism and even small communities like this one making a difference. We're a part of that. We're a part of that. I, I think that's incredibly encouraging and, and hopeful. These are just a few examples of how activists and movements have made a difference and are continuing to make a difference. Love is winning on many different frontiers. Love is winning in so many ways and has won in so many ways. Don't lose hope. Yes, there's reason to despair. There will always be reasons. But there's also reasons to have hope. And I think hope is the right choice, not just because it feels better, but I think hope is the right choice is because it's the rational choice. It is, it is more warranted and rational than despair. I love what Susan Griffin, a 76-year-old feminist activist, 76 years old, been working since the 60s on womanist issues. She says this, I've seen enough change in my lifetime to know that despair is not just self-defeating, but unrealistic. I love that. Despair is not just self-defeating, but it's actually unrealistic. Because if we've learned anything from history, it is that the unimaginable is ordinary, and the way forward is never, ever a straight line. The world is a totally uncertain place, Nobody knows what the future holds. And there are endless possibilities, both good and bad, but endless possibilities. And I believe we can embrace the chaotic and uncertain nature of our world as actually a good thing. The chaotic nature of the world makes it impossible to know the full impact of our actions. We must therefore take a leap of faith and believe that the actions driven by love can actually improve the world. And this is not blind faith. This is no blind faith. Because all of human history indicates that such faith is the only engine of positive change. Choosing to practice hope is not delusional or naive. It is rational. And it's always been integral to progress, any kind of progress. As a Christian, I'm reminded of the parable of the mustard seed, right? One of Jesus' greatest parables. What's that about? And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. 
big things have small beginnings. It's a quote from Lawrence of Arabia, but that Jesus would basically say the same thing. Big things have small beginnings. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Things like love and compassion and justice might be weak and paltry and insignificant according to the world standards of what's strong and mighty. Right? The world and empire says what's strong and mighty is violence and force and coercion, military might, magic and power, and glory. And, you know. The kingdom of God says, no, what's strong and mighty is the mustard seed of love and compassion and justice and community. Love and compassion and justice and community. Big things like that have small beginnings, I guess. Or mustard seeds like that have enormous power. It takes faith to believe that. Because it's antithetical and uh, against the world's definitions of what's strong and mighty. But that is the kingdom of God. A mustard seed. Hope is a habit. Hope is a habit. Hope is a discipline. Hope takes action and practice. Being a person of hope does not mean that you don't feel despair. In fact, quite the opposite. I think being a person of hope means that you know despair, you know sorrow, because you know how bad the world really is and how, how much it needs people of hope. I think the nativity story in Matthew's gospel calls us to that kind of hope. Not a naive hope. Not a naive hope that glosses over the world's problems with empty religious platitude like, you know, God's going to make everything okay. But the Gospels call us into a kind of hope that makes sense in the world and that can actually make a difference. Let's be those kind of people. Let's pray. Loving God of hope, who empowers us to change the world, even in small ways, give us a vision for what that looks like. Strengthen our spirits, strengthen our hearts for what lies ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Recently, it can tend to get a little glum here sometimes, <laughs> which is okay. But that was like so positive. Oh, and, good. You know, all listing off all the all, everything that we have accomplished, yeah. even in just the last hundred to fifty years. Yeah. Um, I think something for me recently that has just been so positive and I feel like is, is a step forward is within my own family. You know, I know you know that I came out to my family this year. Yeah. <laughs> and my parents are very evangelical, you know, so obviously not affirming. Um, but when I went back, right before Thanksgiving, I had been to one of Kathy Baldock's talks, mm -hmm. and I bought her book, and I took it home for Thanksgiving and I snuck it in my mom's trunk because I didn't want my dad to see. And I told her, I put a book in your trunk. 
<laughs> um, and if any of you have seen Kathy Baldock's book, it's thick. Yeah. It's like thick. Yeah. And it's She's intense. small yeah. print. And like two weeks ago, my mom called me up and said, I finished the book. So, and, and wow. we, yeah. So, and then in the course of our conversation, she was using the term LGBT. And I was like, who's this person? <laughs> and she's not, still not like affirming. And I think a lot of that has to do with my parents' marriage and what that would do to it. It's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. I think that in her heart, she's probably affirming at this point. But yeah. to see that kind of change and like willingness on her part to even like entertain yeah. a different point of view was so amazing. That's for me. so encouraging, so. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so. so many of us have changed in that regard too. So how could we expect that? that can't happen for others, you know? Thank you, Jen, that was really powerful. Um, somebody else have a hope or a despair they wanna share? Yeah, Ben, you pass the mic back, thanks. Uh, not a ton to add, but just just had some thoughts that, um, uh, like the partisanship that's been going on has given oh, yeah. me a lot of despair, uh, especially with the impeachment and everything, just feeling like a lot of people are kind of towing the line of, um, so sometimes that can make you feel pretty down. Right. Um, but on the flip side, <clears throat> something that I've been trying to do recently that's really been helpful for me uh, in terms of perpetuating hope was uh, uh, taking stock in what I'm grateful for. Yeah. So whether it's a, uh, each day or just once a week or something like that, like actually taking just like five to 10 minutes to think about things that maybe I'm grateful for. And sometimes I've noticed that's opened up my mind to all these blessings or things that have happened in my life that maybe I didn't take the time to recognize. Yeah. And sometimes that I'll even write it down in like a little journal or something like that and, and it can build up. And so sometimes you can flip back and look and go like, you know what, actually things are all right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Things are, things are going okay. And there are a lot of things that I'm very, very grateful for and, and have hope in, you know, for the future and that sort of thing. So. That's really important to remember, isn't it? And we yeah. can practice just even taking five minutes or two minutes to think about what we're thankful for. How can that can really, that can really change our perspective on things. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Anybody else want to share something? Mm -hmm.